welcome you very much to the library company's 278th annual meeting and hope you will enjoy all the good food, good company, and both the exhibits that are up. I call the meeting to order formally, and at this moment I would like to turn the meeting over to our secretary, Helen Weary. Good evening, afternoon, whatever it is. Um, I am pleased to announce that there is a quorum present. One quarter of the membership is present, either in person or by proxy. There are directors nominated for three-year terms, Beatrice W.B. Garvin, Gordon M. Marshall, Joseph S. Martz, Charles E. Rosenberg, Carol E. Saltis, and John C. Tootin. And there is a director nominated for a two-year term, the Honorable James R. Roebuck, Jr. No additional names were placed in nomination by the membership, and the nominations are therefore closed. May I have a vote for the slate by a show of hands of the shareholders present who did not return their proxy cards? This is a test. <laughs> Do you remember? <laughs> All those in favor, raise your hands. Opposed, raise your hands. Thank you. So I uh, cast the vote the proxies for the slate of nominees and declare that they are elected. Thank you. I'd like to announce that the Board of Trustees has this year adopted three new bylaws. One is to institute term limits for themselves. One is to authorize the election of trustees emeriti. And the third is to authorize actions by the board, by unanimous consent, by electronic communication. Copies of the bylaws are available by calling the library company office if anyone would like to look at the revised version. I'd like to introduce a board, new board member, um, Joseph Martz is here. How are you? Maybe you left. <laughs> and, um, sorry. Now, um, we have a special diversion tonight. Uh, Stacy. Stacy Richards is here. She's also a new board member. Would you stand up, please? Thank you. I'm sorry. Thanks. Uh, we have a special event tonight. This is totally uh, off the agenda. This is unexpected and probably will never happen again. But I am pleased to announce a very special award, which is being given tonight by the Board of Trustees to one of its own. Bob Demento, would you please come up here? <laughs> Hi, Bob. <laughs> Shepherds, this is the Shepherds Crook, since time began have used the crook to gently urge members of their flock to follow the path. Each of us of, as board members of 
uh, the library company and as members of the library company can help the institution by urging others to join us in supporting the library company of Philadelphia. Bob has sponsored seven new members in the last 12 months and 11 over the last two years. And so we created this award to call attention to the library company's need for new members and our desire to have you as our members help us get new members. And since Bob has set such an extraordinary example for us, we are awarding him this one-time Shepherd's Crook Award for bringing 11 new members to the library company. Thank you. Bob, you only get to keep it until we give the award again. Okay. All right. <laughs> I now recognize B. Garvin, who will make the president's report. Well, I'm delighted to present my third report as your president. As you will hear in the treasurer's report later, the 2008 report was a challenging year for the library company, as it was for other nonprofits. Nevertheless, entering our 278th year, the library company will forge ahead with our accustomed level of service to researchers both on-site and at a distance, and offer our accustomed array of scholarly and public programs. John Van Horn will be reporting about last year's activities, but it's my pleasure to tell you about some of last year's interesting acquisitions and to point out two exhibitions, the Logan Room, often packed with people and food, but look about tonight as Carol Soltis, trustee, and I, together with library company staff Jim Green, Jennifer Rosner, Linda August, and Al Velasta, have given the Logan Room the attention it deserves. It has been <laughs> Everybody had to hear us all the year about it. It's been painted and installed to present as well as preserve some of the library company's distinguished collections in the fine arts, newly conserved, as well as some of the curious artifacts, gifts to the library company over the years but long stowed away, telescope, drawing instruments, etc., listed in the inventories of Philadelphia's 18th century citizenry, Franklin's possessions, personal and scientific, and de rigueur, a lock of George Washington's hair. Best of all, a clear, illustrated guide for the visitor to the room. We hope this effort has added another dimension to the library company's primary role making its unique collections available. We would like to acknowledge with thanks contributions and in-kind help from the Pennsylvania Historical and Museum Commission, the City of Philadelphia, the Schwartz Gallery, PMA Conservation, that's Philadelphia Museum of Art, and several individual donors. Please take time to wiggle through the crowd during the reception to see what a very fine museum collection the library company has accumulated over the years. We continue to add to our collection of printed and graphic materials in 2008 through purchases made with our limited acquisition funds, but also through important gifts. And this is a show and tell. Are you ready? At year's end, yeah, lights. I guess I'll be able to see. That's fine. Fine for me. Yep. I can make it up if I can't see it. <laughs> at, 
At year's end, Michael Zinman, whose massive collection of early American imprints we acquired in 2000, gifted several collections that have been on deposit, including 40 additional pre-1801 books and pamphlets about 125 pre-1801 blank forms, and about 30 19th century printings of the Declaration of Independence, about 35 additions to his binding collection, and about 30 other miscellaneous books. Picking a high point among these is not easy, but let it be the one manuscript. The printer's copy for the New Pennsylvania Almanac for 1792, printed by R. Campbell, Early American almanac copy is almost unheard of. What this establishes is that the copy supplied by the almanac maker consisted only of the astronomical calculations. All the other filler was supplied by someone else, the printer or a writer. Only one printed copy of this almanac has survived in the New York Public Library. Number two. In 1849, Elizabeth Blackwell became the first woman to graduate from medical school in the United States. The Carol Smith Rosenberg collection given last year includes a first edition of Blackwell's first book, The Laws of Life with Special Reference to the Physical Education of Girls, New York, 1852. It contains a book plate of the library of the Ladies Physiological Institute of Boston and Vicinity, which was organized in 1848 and incorporated in 1850, still meeting and sponsoring lectures today is possibly the oldest woman's organization in the country. Number three, Pride's Fall, or A Warning for All English Women. Reprinted at Boston in New England, dating from the 1730s, a a unique printing of a popular British morality ballad, which described a proud Geneva merchant's beautiful wife who gives birth to a monstrous child dressed in the popular shameful garb of the day, holding a mirror in one hand and a switch with which to punish in the other. At the end of the tale, the monster warns those listening of the dangers of vanity and pride and dies. Accompanying the verse is a woodcut of the monster, based on an an image published in England, but undoubtedly an American production as it is in reverse and has a number of minor variations. Number four. Bookseller Steve Finer offered us a grand selection of 19th century pamphlets. We purchased 66 of them. The most interesting is a brief and unrecorded piece from the early 19th century printed by the Long Island Star newspaper entitled A Tract on the Importance of Every Family Reading a Weekly Newspaper and Keeping Regular Files Thereof. Brooklyn, 1811. Star editor Alden Spooner argued that newspapers contained important information and every bit of them, including the advertisements, Bill Helfond will love that, should be read. Parents could inculcate knowledge in their children at an early age by reading to them from the newspaper. He also firmly believed that only by reading newspapers could people become full, engaged citizens capable of thinking and talking about complex issues. A newspaper, quote, a newspaper is a complete map of a busy life, he wrote, exhibiting in one view all its vast concerns, not to be used as waste paper or loaned out to friends. Newspapers should be saved, hung from a wire hook, and the issues gathered up and bound together after a year. Number five. Patricia Tyson Stroud McCurdy donated three items related to famous actress Charlotte Cushman's career a manuscript letter written by Cushman to a Buffalo theater manager in 1873, 
A printed circular issued by Ford's Grand Opera House in Baltimore announces a performance on her farewell tour in 1875. Finally, an unidentified newspaper clipping reprints Eliza Cook's tribute to Miss Cushman after her death in February 1876. A portrait of Charlotte Cushman by Thomas Sully is hanging on the south wall of the Logan Room over the William Penn desk. Take a look. She's very charming. Number six. Our trustee, Davida Deutsch, purchased for us Hugo Grotius's The Truth of Christian Religion, now translated into English. Davida, did you read it? <laughs> I can't imagine it. By Simon Patrick, 3rd edition, London, 1689, on the occasion of Jim Green's 25th anniversary. Carrying the book plate and signature of William Byrd of Westover, it's almost identical to half a dozen other signatures in our 115 Byrd books, and most closely matched to a signature dated by Byrd of 1689. Kevin Hayes, who produced the catalog of Byrd's library that we published in 1997, finds that Byrd began buying books ex extensively even before he left Felsted School in Essex in 1690. His evidence is a bookseller's bill for 1688-90, to 90, amounting to the very substantial sum of 35 pounds, and this book is probably one of these purchases. In 1701, Byrd met the translator Simon Patrick while he was traveling around England, and in his diary he noted reading the book on three consecutive days in 1710. What is more, the truth of Christian religion is one more we can count on in the collection known to have been owned by Americans before 1700, putting our current tally at about 36. Seven. Other purchases of note include the first edition of the Black Book, or Corruption Unmasked, London, 1820, a compilation of the earnings of prominent English figures, including members of the clergy and landed aristocracy. Certainly relevant right now, the book was intended to reveal the influence of special interest groups on government. Dedicated to laborers, artisans, and farmers, the work purported to be an exposition of the chief causes of their poverty. According to the anonymous compiler, despite Great Britain's natural and human resources, it, quote, is the most wretched, its population the most degraded, its government the most corrupt, the clergy the most rapacious and hypocritical, end quote. The book sold over 50,000 copies, was extremely popular, and saw several supplements and editions including the variant Red Book. Our copy contains the book plate of Edward Duncan Ingraham, a prominent Philadelphia lawyer, who in 1834 was appointed to investigate the affairs of the Second Bank of the United States. With this purchase, bookseller Barry Cassidy also gave us the one-page publisher's prospectus, informing the public that the book could be purchased affordably in parts and then bound into a handsome octavo volume containing quote, a complete exposition of government corruption. Eight. With funds provided by Michael Zinman, we bought Horace's lyric works, Philadelphia 1786, translated by John Park. The book is fairly common, but this is the only known copy with the highly eccentric front frontispiece colored by hand. It is the earliest American colored book illustration that we have. Nine. For the print collection, we purchased Jeff Davis in prison, an, 18, an 1865 Cincinnati lithograph political cartoon that depicts the former Confederate president during his two-year incarceration in Fort Monroe, Virginia. 
With his legs in shackles, Davis points to the prison food, complaining that it's unfit to eat. His protests fall on deaf ears as soldiers respond that similar food is good enough for the prisoners at Andersonville, Libby, and Bell Island. This print fits in well with our collection of Civil War-era political cartoons that includes five images depicting the capture of Jefferson Davis in women's clothing and one print of his arrival in print at, at prison. A New York lithographed political cartoon is Barn Burners in a Fix, issued during the 1852 presidential election, which shows Democratic candidate Franklin Pierce driving a cart, sinking in the mud under the weight of the party's platform of free trade and no internal improvements. He implores newspaper editor William Cullen Bryant to assist, but Bryant, along with several others, sits on top of a burning barn, a visual reference to the radical faction of the New York State Democrats who, who favored social and monetary reform. Former President Martin Van Buren, who had been the barn burner's candidate in 1848, ignores the latter, labeled compromise, put up by his son, New York politician John Van Buren, and jumps off the roof in the guise of a fox, his nickname. Until acquiring this print, the collection included only two cartoons relating to the 1852 election. We purchased a large collection, 178 gelatin print, silver prints by John Frank Keith, circa 1910 to 1930. The collection consists of informal portraits of working class Philadelphians taken in front of their homes. John Frank Keith lived in Kensington for many years and the photographs are probably his own neighborhood in South Philadelphia. The people Keith photographed were not intimidated by him, and the photographs he created reveal how these working-class Philadelphians thought of themselves and how they wanted to be seen by others. Keith did not have a social reformer's agenda connected to his photography. Described by relatives as shy and socially awkward, Keith's photographs are immediate and clearly connected with his subjects. This collection increases our Keith Holdings threefold and makes the library company's collection the largest in any public repository. Other institutions holding material include the Getty Museum and the National Museum of American Art. Trustee William Helfond has given us a French woodcut from about 1941 by Bill Jean. Say the last name. Are you asleep? I can't say it. C-J-I-E-Z-E. Yes, uh, all right. Which might, it might seem to be outside the scope of the library company's collections, but it depicts St. John and the Latin door, the patron saint of printers and topographers, very much in our field of interest. And finally, I must draw your attention to the very significant acquisition last year, the 31 lots that the library company acquired at the auction sale of Jay Snyder's collection of Philadelphiana. Many of these acquisitions are, view, are on view in our new exhibition, um, expertly curated by um, print curator Sarah Weatherwax and assistant curator Erica Piola with an assist from librarian Jim Green. Assist from Jim Green. Mr. Snyder, who now lives in Los Angeles and unfortunately could not be with us this evening, helped us enormously by providing about half the funds we needed to bid so successfully. Other donors included trustees Bill Helfond, Gordon Marshall, Charlie Rosenberg, and uh, Robert Demento provided additional funds. And rare book dealer Clarence Wolf, who also could not be with us this evening, handled our bidding without commission. 
That's a whirlwind tour of just a few of our most interesting acquisitions last year. The library company continues to build collections and enhance the experience of readers and visitors. I thank you all very much for enabling us to do this important work. I'm back with the treasures report um, for Bob Christian, who could not be here today. 2008 was a very difficult year for the library company, as it was for most everyone and for most institutions around the world. Our endowment, which is invested in a pretty traditional mix of stocks and bonds, lost about 23% of its value over the course of last year, declining from about $24.3 million to about $18.4 million. Fortunately, that decline has been halted, at least temporarily, and we've been holding our own so far this year. But it will obviously be quite a while before we will make up that lost ground and recover to pre-recession levels. And while we are striving to do that, the next few years will likely be more difficult than 2009 because of the 12-quarter trailing average of our assets, which we use to calculate our budget and determine the use of our endowment, uh, and which we use to determine the use of our endowment, will continue to decline. Our operating budget last year was about $2.3 million, and our spending rate was a little over 5% of the market value and a little over 6% of the 12-quarter trailing average. We are doing everything we can to operate the library company as efficiently and cost-effectively as possible. There has never been much in the way of fat in our operating budget, and these days we are especially aware of that. We have avoided layoffs to this point by leaving a couple of positions vacant, equivalent to a 10% reduction in staff, and thereby have reduced our operating budget from $2.3 million last year to $2.1 million this year. This means that current staff are working harder and smarter to carry out our mission with fewer human resources than in the recent past. And on the revenue side, we continue to rely on the generosity of the foundations, government agencies, and most of all, the individuals, our trustees, and other shareholders who have always provided the financial wherewithal for the library company to be one of the finest independent research libraries in the nation. And we are very grateful for your support. Now I'm pleased to introduce the director, John Van Horn. This is a, a terrific turnout, a full house here. Uh, I want to bring you up to date on some of our activities uh, over the past year. Uh, last year, we completed work on an important cataloging project, which was funded by the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation, the retrospective conversion, or recon, of several important parts of our holdings in order to add records to our online catalog. These included books in Franklin's library, uh, pre-1701 English imprints, uh, two different bindings collections, one donated by Michael Zinman and the other by Todd Pattison, uh, our collection of sheet music, uh, things from the Zinman collection of early American imprints, and 30,000 graphic items uh, listed on 15 separate inventories kept in our print department. 
And now that work on that three-year Mellon-funded project is over, we can say with some confidence that records for almost all of our pre-1880 uh, imprints and most of our graphics collections are now available uh, in the online catalog Wolfpack, which I'm sure many of you uh, have used. And work continued throughout 2008 on two other grant-funded projects. Uh, the William Penn Foundation is supporting Philadelphia on Stone, the first 50 years of lithography, which is a multifaceted three-year project uh, involving surveying other collections for lithographic uh, cataloging, uh, lithographs, cataloging and digitizing them, mounting an exhibition, creating a website, and publishing a book. And all of those uh, aspects of the, of the project are being uh, taken care of by Project Director Erica Piola, uh, assisted by Linda Wisniewski. Uh, this, uh, this is a, a, a typical lithograph from the period that we're dealing with. Uh, this one uh, view of, what's that, the uh, sanitary fair uh, with the cathedral in the background. And the other project we've been working on all last year was a project funded by the National Endowment for the Humanities uh, to catalog early American imprints uh, that we had acquired from the Zinman Collection for the most part that were not previously represented in what's called Digital Evans, which is the most comprehensive uh, digital uh, online resource for finding early American imprints. So virtually all the things that we cataloged with NEH support uh, will be new additions uh, to this universe of, of early American imprints. Holly Phelps has been the project cataloger on that uh, program, and it came to a very successful conclusion just last month. And uh, we're now partnering with Redex Newsbank, a company that's going to be digitizing uh, many of these materials so that we can offer them uh, by subscription uh, to libraries. Portia, come on in. There's... And now I want to touch on some of our, our three topical programs. You're all familiar with PEAS, our program in early American economy and society. Last year we issued two uh, books. Where am I aiming this? There. Yep. In our monograph series that we published with the Johns Hopkins University Press. Uh, this book, uh, Bring... Uh, buying into the World of Goods, Early Consumers in Backcountry Virginia uh, by Ann Smart Martin has already won two book awards. And then more recently, we published Scraping By, a book by Seth Rockman about uh, the economic history of early Baltimore. And this is going to be the subject of the annual Pease Conference, which will take place uh, in October of, of this year. And then we also had a couple of other activities. Uh, this is a seminar we had uh, last fall on coffee uh, given by one of our former Pease fellows. And then later that weekend, uh, we had our annual conference, which was called uh, Markets and Morality, uh, Intersections of Economy, Ethics, and Religion in, in Early North America. The papers given at this conference will be published uh, sometime soon as a special issue of the journal uh, Early American Studies. We've always thought that PEAS would be a model for other programs we might establish in other areas of our collection strengths, and that turned out to be the case. Uh, in 2007, we started a program in African American history, which you heard about uh, at the last uh, annual meeting, that's been funded for the next few years by the Albert M. Greenfield uh, Foundation. 
Uh, it's been very active, especially in 2008, in light of the fact that we were observing the bicentennial that year of the closing of the international slave trade to the United States. Uh, Richard Newman, a scholar at the University of, uh, no, I'm sorry, Rochester Institute of Technology, uh, gave a talk last year about his new biography of Richard Allen, the founder of Bethel, uh, Methodist Episcopal, African Methodist Episcopal Church. Uh, and Rich Newman also directed for us a summer seminar funded by the National Endowment for the Humanities on abolitionism and a one-week uh, teacher training course with the school district of Philadelphia uh, also on, on abolitionism. And then uh, also sponsored a major conference uh, that we co-sponsored with the McNeil Center for Early American Studies uh, called Atlantic Emancipations, again around that same theme of the closing of the, uh, the international slave trade. And then we mounted uh, an exhibition called Black Founders, the Free Black Community in the Early Republic, uh, which was curated by our uh, curator of African American history, Phil Lapsansky. Uh, so those were the, the major events in concerning African-American history last year. Uh, one other one was I, I gave a, a brief talk at the Philadelphia Museum of Art uh, at a program that we jointly sponsored uh, prior to the filming, the, the, the screening of uh, Steven Spielberg's film called uh, Amistad. Another project that has gotten underway recently is our visual culture uh, program. And that is intended to promote the use of historical images as primary source materials in studying the past. I guess you could go to the next one. Yeah, this is the, the logo that Nicole Scalessa on our staff kind of designed for the visual culture program. A montage showing a lot of the different kinds of materials in our collections, both in books and in ephemera and in uh, separate prints and graphics, uh, dealing with all aspects of visual culture. The program was really inspired by our trustee, uh, William Helfand, uh, who got us started up down this road. He's been funding annually a fellowship for someone to study, uh, come here and study visual culture. And our first program last year was uh, something called uh, Talking Prints, which was a conversation between Don Cresswell and Chris Lane, the proprietors of the Philadelphia Print Shop, who were reflecting on their uh, 25 years in the business uh, and talking about changes in, in the print market. And I should also mention that Don Cresswell, over the last several years, has established a, uh, an endowment fund for the uh, acquisition of graphic materials that will now be, be part of that program as well. Our fellowship program uh, continues to thrive. It's now 22 years old. Uh, every year, it seems, we, we do better and better as far as the number of people who apply to this program. It's very competitive. Uh, this coming year, as a matter of fact, we've decided we're only going to advertise electronically on various listservs and uh, email bulletins and that sort of thing. We've been printing uh, these brochures for all these years now, uh, and the program is now so well established, and people hear about it through word of mouth and through electronic means that we think we can get by without printing and mailing thousands of, of copies of our brochures all over the country. So next year, we'll see how that works. Uh, the program is supported by some endowment funds, by some um, recurring grants, such as the one we get from the National Endowment for the Humanities to support postdoctoral fellowships. And then we also get uh, grants each year from uh, individuals to support uh, fellowships in certain areas. I mentioned the Health Fan Fellowship in Visual Culture, and we also have one from uh, the Reese Company for, for one in um, 
in book history, early American bibliography, and we now also have four uh, short-term fellowships in African-American history funded in, by that Greenfield uh, grant that I mentioned. Exhibitions last year, we were again pretty active. Uh, early in 08, we still had a couple of exhibitions up that had opened in late 2007. Uh, they were uh, both outside of Philadelphia. One was our own Franklin writer and printer exhibition that was at the Grolier Club in New York, and the other was uh, Benjamin Franklin in Search of a Better World, which was the major tercentenary exhibition uh, that was on view in Paris at two different museums, the Museum, Musée des Arts et Métiers and the Musée Carnavalet. And uh, because of that uh, uh, exhibition there, we took the opportunity to plan a trip. And uh, some of us from the library company and also members of the American Philosophical Society uh, made a, a sort of Franklin-oriented uh, pilgrimage to Paris last January. And then another initiative that we're involved in is digitization. Uh, we've just uh, struck a deal to create a, a product with a company, uh, a vendor called Alexander Street Press. They're going to put together a product that will be about 50,000 images of the Civil War era uh, based on our collections and those of the American Antiquarian Society and the Virginia and Massachusetts Historical Societies. And when this project is completed in a couple of years, they'll, they'll go to market and sell this uh, collection of images to libraries by subscription. And it's a, a way that in the future, the library company might uh, begin to see some uh, royalties from that sort of a venture. Of course, none of these accomplishments would have been possible without our terrific staff and, and board. We have a very uh, talented and dedicated uh, group of employees. You heard from our treasurer that, that we're all working harder these days as there are fewer of us. Uh, but we're still doing, as you can hear, all the usual things that, that we're known for. And we're very proud that we're able to uh, maintain that level of professionalism and, and productivity. Uh, so I hope all of you members who support us uh, appreciate what, what the staff does to, uh, to forward the mission of the institution. I want to... Yeah, the staff is all wearing name tags this evening, so as you encounter them uh, during the reception, please be sure to thank them for, for what they do. And they're, of course, appreciative for, of, of what you do for the library company as well. I want to mention a couple of staff members in particular. Uh, I, I mentioned Phil Lapsansky earlier. Uh, he's not here today, so I'll have to acknowledge him in absentia. But last year, uh, he went half-time. He kind of semi-retired uh, from chief of reference to curator of African-American history. And he's now doing that uh, actually a little more than half-time. I always have a hard time keeping him to his his stated hours, uh, but he's really happy doing it, and he's a great resource for the city and the region, uh, and he now, I think, is playing even a much larger role in uh, African-American history and Civil War uh, kind of ventures uh, than he was able to do when he was chained to his desk from, from 9 to 5. His place in the reading room has been taken by Connie King, who's now our chief of reference, uh, and uh, Rachel D'Agostino is now our, our curator of printed books. So I want to acknowledge those uh, changes as well. Uh, and also to thank Sarah and Erica, Sarah Weatherwax and Erica Piola, whom our treasurer mentioned, who are the curators of the really wonderful exhibition that you'll, you're about to see of our uh, uh, acquisitions from the J. Snyder collection. But more than just the Snyder acquisitions, they really tell a lot of wonderful stories about how those new materials relate to and complement and 
play off of and strengthen things that have been in our collection in many cases for many, many uh, decades, if not centuries. Uh, so I think you'll, you'll enjoy that exhibition very well. And thanks to Erica and Sarah for, for putting that together. Finally, I want to acknowledge uh, Charlene Knight, who, since we met last, uh, has passed her 15th anniversary with the library company. You all know Charlene. She's our receptionist. She's the one who answers the phone when you call, and she's the one who greets all of our visitors when they arrive, uh, checking in readers and uh, uh, managing affairs out at the front. She's very friendly and very efficient, and she's our, our public face and does a great deal to represent the library company uh, in the best way possible. When she answers the phone, you know that public service is, is one of our uh, things we're most proud of. Not for us is a an automated phone system with a maze of options and no human voice. So we have Charlene to thank for that. So I'd like to present Charlene with our uh, join or die lovely wooden box with Franklin's, Franklin's political cartoon stamped on the front. We're not trying to send any messages here, uh, except one message, which is inscribed on the underside of the lid. It says, presented to Charlie Knight, May 12, 2009, with deep appreciation of her 15 years of service to the Library Company of Philadelphia.